Macworld Podcast number 329 for Wednesday, November 21st, 2012. Welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. I'm senior editor Dan Morton, joined by senior writer Lex Friedman. Hi, Dan. Hi, Lex. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? I'm pretty well. You know why we're here today? Well, I, I hope it's not to give thanks because I haven't prepared for that. We're not going to give thanks. We're going to give something else. We're going to give the gift of of giving the gift of the, <laughs> well, the gift of the gab. Um, and if there's one thing that you and I are experts in, it is the gift of the gab. That is very true. So we figured that with Thanksgiving right around the corner, and by the corner we mean tomorrow. So I hope you've gotten all your Thanksgiving shopping done. And if um, you're not brining the turkey yet, you should be. You really you should preheat that oven. Um, we figured we could offer some helpful tips. Now, a lot of the time when we give tips on this podcast, it's tips about things you can do with your Mac or your iPhone or your iPad. Today, we're going we're gonna to take a slightly different uh, track. We're going to give you some tips for dealing with the inevitable conversations that arise around the Thanksgiving Day table. Now, usually when you're with your family, the, the, at least if, you, if your lives are anything like ours, the questions you get might skew technical. You know, it's, you know, how do I do X on my iPhone? How do I, you know, how do you use iMovie the best on the Mac? Whatever it is. And, and those questions, we think at this point, you are accomplished and well-versed enough in your, your Mac and iOS devices to handle on your own. That's not the advice we're giving you. Have we mentioned that we also think you are very handsome? Uh, we love you. But in addition, what we figure is that you probably run into a fair amount of questions about Apple in general and about its products. You you may have found yourself perhaps, shall we say, on the defensive from time to time, right. having to answer questions from those friends and relatives about things that Apple has done or choices that they've made. And so what we're going to do is equip you with at least what we think are reasonable answers to the perhaps challenging questions you might hear uh, as you gobble down the turkey stuffing and mashed potatoes. Uh, and so uh, when, the, when those questions come in, he, he, here are what we think uh, the best answers, the best responses to such challenges might be. Oh, the other thing you could do, by the way, is just say, bring on the pumpkin pie and we'll talk about computers some other time. That's a fine option. Or start a food fight. <laughs> yes. Also a good option. Or, uh, you know, just compliment your mother-in-law's new haircut. I just It's a good way to get out of it. Sometimes the best answer is just to not engage. So tell me about the iPad. I really like your mother-in-law's new haircut. <laughs> well, I was suggesting if it was your mother-in-law asking. Oh, now iPad. I understand. I mean, just come pulling that one out just out of nowhere, I think, is going to cause more raised eyebrows than anything. <laughs> All right. So let, let's start off with the, uh, the first one that we're sure is going to come up because it's the most popular, uh, hottest new device that everybody's talking about vis-a-vis Apple, and that is the iPad mini. Lex, why don't you, why don't you run this one down for us? Well, well, the question I think you're going to hear about the iPad mini, I think there are a few. But people are going to say, you know, well, first, tell me about the iPad mini. That's easy. But then when they say, well, I heard that it's really expensive. Why is it so much more than some of the other 7-inch tablets? I heard that its screen is lousy, and you can get the Kindle Fire tablet for, I don't know, 60 bucks or something ridiculous. So uh, what what's the big deal about the little iPad? That's, that's a lot of questions to unpack. First of all, I, I, I guess to the question of does it have a lousy screen, the first thing to do would be to look at the devices that, that the, the questioner, your relative or friend at the Thanksgiving table, already uses. You know, if they're accustomed to, say, the original iPad or the second generation iPad, or if they're using any iPhone from before the iPhone 4, or if they're using any competitor devices that don't have retina displays, I would say, and Dan, please tell me if you disagree, that they wouldn't be disappointed by the iPad mini's display. It is not a retina display, but it's still not, it's not terrible. It's, it's sure. got more pixels than their laptop screen probably does. 
it's all about what you're used to. I think that's the big part, the takeaway from the iPad mini screen is, you know, for example, if you're, even if they're using an iPad, if it's an original iPad or an iPad 2, or they're using an iPhone that's a pre-iPhone 4, then, you know, for example, the screens are pretty good on those for, for their times. And I think that the, the iPad mini has a, has a pretty good screen in comparison to everything pretty much except for those brand new Retina displays or that new Droid that's got a 1080p screen on a right. smartphone, which is crazy. And I don't know if this is true for you, uh, dear listener, but I, as someone who owns both an iPad mini and a, a Retina display having iPad, um, you know, I've switched to using my iPad mini as my, my full-time iPad. And, you know, for the first day, I missed the Retina display, but I very quickly got reused, reaccustomed to the uh, to the less high-pixel-dense display. I just think how awesome that will be when Apple eventually releases an a iPad mini with a retina display oh, and you'll so get great. to be wowed all over again. But so, okay, so I, th- I think we've, we've explained the display part, but then how do, how do we address these complaints, Dan, from, from Uncle Sven? Uh, I have a lot of German family members. When Uncle Sven says, you know, but it's, if it doesn't even have the retina display, why is it $329? Justify well, this Apple tax. I think that there's a lot of uh, great things that are included in the iPad mini that you're not going to get from the competitors. And the number one thing in that regard is the Apple ecosystem or what you said. (laughs) But I'm going to go with the Apple ecosystem. I mean, the biggest advantage that, that Apple has as a tablet maker over all of its competitors is a huge swath of tablet optimized apps. It's a mammoth swath. I agree. It is. There are mammoths. Yeah. There are, uh, you know, over 275,000 apps optimized for the iPad, I believe, on the on the App Store. Right. And that compares with pretty favorably with the competitors from the likes of the Kindle, Fire, or a lot of the Android tablets. Now, they have apps, certainly, but uh, on both of those, when you go beyond the included apps, and, and, see even, and even with the Android tablets, often in the case of the included apps, what you're looking at a lot of times are smartphone apps that are blown up to fit a tablet screen. And that might be functional enough, but you might be you're going to be lacking a lot of the the nice design choices that people have made that developers have made with things like iPad apps where they're really looking for ways to take advantage of all that great space. And this is an interesting argument for for Apple fans to make because, you know, decades ago when it was the Windows versus Mac debate, uh, we, you know, people would say, you know, Windows has way more apps for it, or I guess they call them applications or programs or whatever then, uh, than the Mac does. And Mac users would say, it's fine that you have more. We don't need more. As long as we have a good word processor or a good game, <laughs> then we're fine. Uh, I don't think that argument holds up. That defensive Apple argument holds up as well on the other side in the, in the time of the iPad and other tablets, because it's not just that there are so many more apps for the uh, native tablet optimized apps for the iPad. It's that when you stack the apps against each other, uh, for whatever reason, the innovation and the the beauty is really on the iPad side of the fence. It's the App Store is not just filled with apps; it's filled with many, many choices for excellent apps. Not that's not to say that all apps in the App Store are excellent, but there is such a a high volume of excellent apps available that really just make using the tablet pleasurable, no matter what task you're trying to accomplish. And I think that the uh, the competitors can't really rival that right now. Right. The apps that the people are talking about or that your friends are using or that your family are interested in using are by and large apps that you're going to find 
on the iPad. And that's not as much the case on, on the Android tablets or on the Kindle Fire. Uh, they're, they're, they're building up. I mean, they're getting closer. But at the same time, it's, it's taken a lot more time for them to ramp those up. So, you know, while you can go to the, the App Store and find pretty much all the really, really popular games, um, and you can start to find some of those on, on the Android and the Kindle Fire, there still isn't quite the, the breadth or selection of, of quality titles that we're expecting. I think that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, and if we're talking about apps, it's, it's probably also worth mentioning to, to your family members at the table uh, when they inevitably mention the openness of some of the other tablets, whatever that means to them, that uh, there, as far as I know, there have been no uh, viruses distributed via the iOS app stores. Uh, and the same cannot be said of, I think, any other uncurated app store that's on the market today. Right. So when you're talking about security and about that recent article in the New York Times about passwords and the like of likes of that and phishing schemes and malware, there's a there's a huge advantage in the Apple ecosystem as well. So so it, it, is that a, enough, Dan, do you think, to make the argument of, OK, it's a little bit more expensive than some of these competitive small size tablets, but you get the Apple ecosystem with its giant app store? I think that's a major part of it. I think there are some other things that are real that the iPad Mini has going for it that its competitors don't. For example, and this comes to play with all a lot of Apple's products. I think build quality, just the right. sheer quality of materials and construction that goes into the iPad Mini. To me, comparing it to something like a Kindle Fire or a Nexus Seven, I feel like the you know the use of the glass and the aluminum backing and everything like that. It just feels really solid. It's well put together. It feels like a single like a like a artifact right you know that right. sprung fully formed out of zeus's head and i think if you if you've only seen say a kindle fire or a nexus 7 on television that's one thing uh if you've seen them you know on a in a box on, on the store when on the store shelf that's one thing but when you actually hold these devices in hand and feel their different weights and their textures and feel what the screen feels like to touch it and look at things like just response time as you swipe how long after i drag up on a web page does the web page scroll i think all those things i think it's the build quality on the hardware side and on the software side that you really start to notice uh these are not two different versions of the same thing they're they they kind of inhabit two different worlds Right. It's not a budget cut rate product, though it might be a smaller iPad than the full size iPad. It's not something where they've lopped off a bunch of features or a, a, a lot of quality or time and care to deliver a cheaper product. Um, so you're, you're getting an iPad, right? You're getting an iPad for, you know, a hundred and uh, $70 less than you'd get a, you know, a full size brand new iPad for. So that's a, that's a pretty good argument. You've convinced me. I'm not going to buy a Google tablet. Excellent choice. Try the sweet potato casserole. Thanks. And could you pass the gravy as well? So, Dan, what, what other questions do you think we're going to hear about at the Thanksgiving table? Well, if your family is anything like my family, and I imagine— I think they're it, twinsies. It is. Um, people like to complain to you when, when Apple things go wrong, right? If you're, you're probably the family tech guy. So it's my family and your family are like the tech press in general, you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say there's some similarities. Um, and so I think, you know, you can look at pretty much anything that makes its way into the mainstream media. For example, in the past, you've probably fielded some questions about why the iPhone 4's uh, cellular reception was so bad. Um, and congratulations to you if you ever, you know, got up the nerve to tell that your parents that they were holding their iPhones wrong. But in this case, the latest sort of uh, kerfuffle is all about maps on mm. iOS 6. So I heard they're terrible. Is that true? I, you know, 
it's interesting. They've been improving. And I think this is where you can go with this. You can, so when your parents or your relatives or your friends ask you, well, man, I really am avoiding upgrading to iOS 6 because I really want to keep my existing maps. Maybe uh, holding off on getting an iPhone 5, which will have iOS 6 built in. Then here are some things that you could tell them. For one thing, I think this is the most important. Um, consider that maps are uh, an improving process. And even since the iOS 6 has came out in September, Apple has already started improving the quality of the data. And it's important to distinguish between the fact that Maps has both an application, right? It's a piece of software, but it's also a service in that it provides you with data that's, you know, called from these databases of places of interest um, and, you know, geographical information, satellite photos, etc. So there, there's kind of two different parts. Think of Maps, the application, as more of a container into which the information is poured. Right now, it's it's a nice glass with a really, like, really cheap beer poured in it. Um, and they're improving the quality of that beer. Uh, and so I think it's important to point out that this is a process, and, and certainly Apple's only recently entered the uh, you know the, the mapping arena. Right, Google so had a significant you know many year head start. They've got a lot of catching up to do. So, and they've started doing it, and and I think there's a lot of things that are really positive about Apple Maps that don't get a lot of attention because so much of it is focused on the rather at times uh, egregious flaws that we've seen. And to be fair, there's a lot of work needed. But there are there are some really nice improvements to just the uh, mapping information and also the smaller experience things. of using the app. Right. There's some smaller things. For example, uh, if you happen to live in San Francisco, and you might be lucky in that case because that's sort of the test bed that that Maps uses a lot. Um, I've noticed in, in newer versions, you can find that they actually give you little graphical representations, little icons of some of the notable places of interest in San Francisco. So if you look at ah, Golden Gate Park or Coit Tower or something like that, you'll actually get, even in the map form, a little uh, illustration that's specific to that place. New York, I think, also has them as well. So if you look at the Brooklyn Bridge, um, you'll see that it has a little icon on the map showing you the Brooklyn Bridge. So there's a lot of really nice aesthetic touches that, that make it a lot more friendly. Um, there's also a lot of practical advantages to Apple's Maps. For one thing, uh, you might have heard this term vector-based thrown around a lot. Right. And what that means is instead of saying, here's a picture of, of a map, and it's a graphic, just like an image that you might see on a website. Instead, a vector means it's, it's a set of instructions about how to draw that. And the practical application of that is rather than downloading all of that image information repeatedly, it only needs to store the instructions about how to draw those maps, which means it's a lot smaller. So it loads faster. It scales much better. Uh, and it means that it can more easily cache that information. So if you're offline, some of the maps, whatever maps you have loaded recently, will still be accessible. And you'll even be able to scale in and out of them to a certain extent because that information is very small and easy to store. Now, what makes that, I think, extra important to emphasize is that if your family uh, is like mine, uh, they're going to challenge you on the first part of this defensive map. So they're going to say, okay, so Apple's new to it, but that's not my problem. That's Apple's problem. And uh, that doesn't make it any less lousy if it gives me bad directions or bad intel about what is where. Um, you know, so uh, to, then the county argument that they're going to offer you is, uh, you know, uh, they they had a perfectly fine mapping solution with Google and they shouldn't have left it. Uh, the problem was it, it looks like Apple's deal with Google didn't allow them to make advancements like the one Dan just explained. You know, Apple couldn't do vector-based maps with uh, Google's data in the Maps app, even though Google was offering that that exact vector approach on Android devices uh, with Maps. So 
uh, Apple's reasoning for for leaving Google and Maps wasn't um, necessarily vindictive on Apple's part as much as it was their terms of their deal with Google didn't allow them to offer users the kind of features Apple thought users deserved and would appreciate. So by by rolling its own r- way with Maps, even though it knew, I think, I, I'm sure that Apple anticipated there would be hardships in, in getting Maps going from zero to, you know, everybody using it. Um, it was it ended up being for our benefit. You know, now you have turn-by-turn directions built into the phone and um, with, you know, voice assistance telling you about the streets that you're coming up with and you've got these vector-based uh, maps and those are things that you couldn't do, that Apple couldn't do when it was using Google to power the maps instead. Right, and there's always alternatives, right? You know, so even if you're not happy with maps on iOS 6, uh, Apple's still offering um, via the, the App Store sort of a collection of here are some other map providers that you can get. Um, I believe Nokia is bringing its maps to iOS. Uh, you can access Google Maps via the Google Maps website in Safari still. Uh, and there are some other innovative apps. I'm thinking of one in particular called Quick Route, which actually uses Apple's nice new vector maps. But if you need to do things like directions, uh, it routes them through Google's service and overlays them on Apple's maps. So you might sort of get the best of both worlds out of that, which is which is nice. And But the most important part is, of course, you can do all of these things. Uh, you have access to all of these apps all of these various services so you're not limited into you know just what apple's maps you know offer you right now uh there's there's the possibility that you could have the best of of everything so there's a lot of options still with maps and there's a lot of things to like about maps and i think it's you know worth explaining it's not something to be afraid of necessarily in in upgrading uh it's it's an opportunity granted this isn't the only kind of perception problem that's hurt apple in uh well really in the, in all of its existence right another problem that you're going to hear about i'm sure if you're if your family if the conversation turns to your love of apple products somebody's going to say you know maybe you'll maybe you know one of your relatives is going to say oh i had another virus on my pc or geez i'm going to buy a new laptop because my old dell one is slow to a crawl over the past year and you're going to say why don't you just get a mac and they're going to say why don't you mind your own business? No, they're going to say, uh, well, Macs are so expensive. Macs are too expensive, and I, uh, who can afford that? And if, if Apple is going to sell its cheapest laptop for $1,000, but I can buy, uh, I have no idea. I can't even make up a PC brand on the spot here. Why would I buy an Inspertron 2000 for $200? Of course, that's the laptop I'm going to choose over a $1,000 Apple laptop. And I, I have to tell you, I literally face this every conversation I have with my father-in-law who constantly, you know, he knows me as the computer guy and he only uses Windows PCs. He constantly has problems, comes to me with those problems, and I tell him the solution to this problem is get a Mac. And he says Macs are too expensive. Dan, I need you to equip me. How do I answer him? Well, there's a, there's a lot of options here. And I've, I speak as someone who has gradually transitioned most of his family over to Macs in the mo- in the last three or four years. Uh, I think there are some great arguments here. My, my favorite, especially if you're dealing with someone who has, say, young kids, is that Macs are really great educational tools, and they're really excellent when you're dealing, you know, letting your kids get online and starting to get your kids acclimated with a computer. Um, and part of that is they, they start to get much more familiar. I think we've all had, all especially all of us who have iOS devices, it's a really easy transition to help make for those kids to go back and forth between iOS and Mac devices. And it makes those devices work together in ways that you can do really cool things with. You can shoot movies on your iPhone and your iPad and bring them right over to your Mac and use iMovie there to edit them. Um, they're also just 
they're friendly. They have excellent parental controls. You don't have to worry about viruses, like like Lex is saying. Um, and I think there's a, a lot of really powerful tools there for for helping your kids become more computer literate, and not only to become computer literate, but actually to enjoy using their computers. That's right. And it's you know if people aren't even if people are willing to accept, um, yeah, I think a Mac would be easier to use, or it'd be less problem ridden, or it won't get gunked up with stuff that slows it down over time. They still say, well, that's not necessarily worth the extra money to me. Now, these are people who don't value their own sanity and happiness, or they're not willing to put a price on it. Uh, and I think at that point, you know, if people aren't interested in, you know, say the, the great battery performance of one of these Mac laptops, or if they don't care about the, you know, advantages that OS X offers that, that Windows, even the latest version of Windows can't uh, really match, I think at some point you can acknowledge the, that there's if if they do levy the the phrase a price tax or an apple tax or something that you can say you know it's it's the same way that say uh ferrari charges more for its cars than hyundai apple considers its products luxury items or fanciful or uh, pricier right so why does apple charge that much because it can and so they, these things cost more because apple views them as better and they've got plenty of customers who clearly agree well the value is a really important part of that because i found in my experience that you know uh, if you buy a $500 PC or cheaper these days, uh, these things don't tend to last as long in my experience. Uh, you know, they get virus ridden or or just crufted down really, really fast, just full of crap. And they they ship with, you know, all this extraneous software that you never need. Um, and it's just it it feels like a cheaper experience. And more often than not, those computers die within, you know, a couple years uh, or they start getting just impossibly slow. Uh, right. In my experience, the the, the Macs I've owned, uh, I've paid more for, but they've they've made up for it in the fact that they've lasted longer, um, they've held up better, they don't break down as easily, and and you know in many cases if they do break down, uh, the customer support uh, part of Apple does a great job of replacing them. Right. Nobody nobody in the computer industry rivals Apple's uh, ratings for in terms of customer satisfaction with support and things like that. So if you do have problems when you, you know, I can't even imagine if you have a windows issue and you call up the things they must tell you to do, you know, step one, reinstall windows, step two, throw it away. Um, but you know, the, the genius bar, uh, is very, very helpful at, at fixing common issues and complicated issues alike. And I don't know, I mean, I, I, I did convert my wife who was a lifelong PC user and sometime after we were married and we literally had called in a computer technician because we could not on our own rid her computer of the malware from which it was suffering. She, she does now use a Mac and her, her sister-in-law's both sisters-in-law, both, or I guess her sisters, my sisters-in-law both made the switch as well. And the other two are, are teetering on the edge, you know, her parents, they keep thinking maybe they'll do it and maybe they won't. But um, I think you're right. You can explain that these things are expensive because they're better, and you get what you pay for. Well, and, and my favorite is to always go with the nuclear option. I think this might have originated with our colleague Chris Breen, but uh, you can say, hey, if you get a Mac, I am happy to help you with any problem that you encounter. If you get a PC, you get three support calls. In the next year. Oh, see, that's generous. And then I'm done. <laughs> see, that's it for me now. It, my policy with my father-in-law is until he gets a Mac, I don't help him anymore. I will only laugh at his problems. <laughs> we have a good relationship. Now, so uh, we've, we've, we, I think we've solved, we've solved the Mac question. But what happens uh, if 
if they talk about the iPhone instead. And, you know, I, I have, I, as I'm sure you do, since there are so many of these things out there now, plenty of family members who use iPhones and even love their iPhones, which is great. But there's oftentimes somebody at the table who's going to say something about, you should switch to Android. And they might make arguments we made before, uh, you know, about openness, or they might point out, well, you know, the iPhone 5, it's got that taller screen, but it's still so thin. And I've got this droid that's six inches by two feet, and it's so much better because it's got so much more screen space, and now there's Windows phones. So what do you tell them if their question is, you know, what makes the iPhone better than, than all these other phones on the market? Well, I think the, the first answer to your, your cousin Giovanni here is... <laughs> Just it's an iPhone. <laughs> no, don't. That that'll just infuriate them. If you're going for infuriation, that's the way to go. But I think a lot of the stuff that we said before about the iPad holds true with the iPhone. Agreed. I mean, especially the ecosystem part of it. They're really the number of apps that come out for iOS just dwarf the number of apps for Android, and not just in quantity, but in terms of of quality. Uh, overall, I think we've seen a lot of people really stretch the boundaries of what you can do with a smartphone app uh, when it comes to when it comes to using something like the iPhone. Um, and I think, you know, the Android Android phones have a lot to offer them. For me, my first approach, and this happens with PCs too, you know, I, I think I always try to go in and say, look, you know, there's a lot of options. And if you find that an Android phone is what works for you, that's, that's right. great. Get what I have you no want. problem with that. Get what's going to make you happy. Exactly. If you want that bigger screen and the iPhone 5 just isn't cutting it, get an Android phone. If you want to install applications that are from outside the App Store, you want you don't have any restrictions on what you're doing, yeah, totally. Go get an Android phone. That's going to make you happy. I'm not going to try to shoehorn you into an iPhone 5. And, and frankly, there are things that Android does better, particularly in terms of lock screens and home screens and the customizations you can do there. And Task switching, multi-apps. You know, I think there's there's a lot of, a lot of uh, right. capabilities there that you're not going to get on the iPhone. But if you're just looking for, you know, if you're in the market or you've you got a family member who's in the market for a smartphone and doesn't really know what they're looking for, uh, you know, I think that the iPhone has, has plenty of stuff that that is going to make it a compelling purchase over something like an android phone i agree and you know it's i think this is a question too that in some ways can be answered with not just with with gut feel but also with some science or some real world numbers and the two things that i i would cite are with the the larger phone uh larger android phones that are out there you can show in your hand how your thumb can reach from the bottom corner to the top corner of your iphone 5 or certainly of your iphone predating the 5 and when you look at some of these more gigantic Android phones, you can't do that. You like you literally, you have to use them with two hands, and uh, if you want to reach all the sides of the screen, and maybe that's fine. And if that works for you, then that's fine. But if I, um, for me, I I rely on one-handed use, especially because I have kids, so I've got to be able to, you know, hold the baby in one hand and find the app that he's after, so he'll stop crying in the other. And being able to do that with one hand is is very important to me. And I think that the second bit of science or math to look at here is Android phones sell more phones in theory than iPhones do. There are more Android phones sold than there are iPhones sold. But when you look at the the numbers of how those phones are used and who's using them the most, the the vast majority of mobile web traffic comes from the iPhone. So even though there are fewer iPhones out there, people are using them for their smartphone-y features more. Uh, and I think that's that's very telling. I think what it ends up showing you is that people who have Android phones, uh, not certainly not all of them, but many of them end up not using many of their smartphone features because of whatever limitations they encounter with those phones. Or just and the, the exact, experience, right? right? I mean, the experience, I think, is much more polished on, on the iOS side in general. Um, the Android phones just 
in the in my experience using them they seem to have a steeper learning curve and if you know if i'm trying to get you know my mom or my dad or my grandmother to use a, a smartphone then i'm going to go for the thing with the easiest learning curve possible because uh you know i i she's already you know maybe not used to using a computer or what's the idea of you know a, a cursor or something like that so so you know gently introducing her to the world of of computers that are not just people who you know add up numbers and columns in their ledgers now, if do you expect that anybody at the family table is going to talk to you about uh, speaking of different tablets and and you know competitors with Apple uh, talk about the Microsoft Surface? Oh, I think I think the Surface might come up. Microsoft certainly got a lot of attention focused on it, and it's been in the news lately. Um, and there's all I, I think you're going to hear that question, Lex, asked you. Well, well, why should I have a laptop and a tablet? you know, a MacBook Air and an iPad when I can get something like a Microsoft Surface, which seems to have the best of both worlds? It's a fair question. I can honestly say I have not myself used a Windows Surface tablet. Um, but uh, based on the, the reviews from people I trust, uh, I get the sense that this is, you know, when Apple's with Apple's first generation iPad, it was... Uh, it, it, it was a, a very good iPad. You could buy the first generation iPad and it didn't have any major flaws or weaknesses or glaring omissions. Um, and I think that you could be a very happy purchaser with your brand new iPad. Um, I don't know that that is true with the surface from what I'm hearing. There are weaknesses some of which I don't know if are easy, you know, fix in the next revision or fix with a surf date surf software update problems but rather just sort of also even know, just saying surface software update is just it's really it's hard yeah um but i you know it's i think the surface right now is is trying to it's trying to not to just emulate the ipad which i applaud microsoft for but where apple's saying you know we're going to have a tablet and it's going to have this operating system and it's going to run these special customized apps microsoft trying to say we're going to have a tablet and it's going to run tablet apps and it's going to be able to do windows stuff and it's going to have various abilities it's going to be a computer and a tablet and a dessert topping. And I think, you know, that's, that is an approach, but at least from most of the early reviews I've read, uh, it's trying to do a whole lot of things and it isn't great at any of those things. So right. at the very minimum, I would say don't buy a service unless you've tried it for a while in a Microsoft store, which you'll recognize because it looks like an Apple store only empty. <laughs> well, and I, I think a lot of the advantages is that when people are talking about something like the Surface is they're looking at those keyboard accessories, you know, the touch cover and the type cover. Um, and I've already heard some reports that the touch cover might be not doesn't hold up necessarily as well as you'd like and it's it's hard to type on from everything i've I've understood although you know there's certainly a, a compelling argument there that it's easier to type on than something like the the touch screen on an ipad if you're trying to do like 10 finger you know sure. touch typing um but i mean to be fair there are a lot of uh add-ons for the ipad that offer that same sort of functionality you can hook up a bluetooth keyboard there's a lot of keyboard covers for the full-size ipad um that are that are pretty good um and I think, you know, like, like Lex is saying, I think when you try to do too many things, you know, and you try to satisfy too many people, to a certain extent, you end up satisfying nobody. Because <laughs> it's not maybe not tablet enough for some people, maybe not computer enough for other people. So, uh, you know, I think the Surface is interesting as a, as a product. But uh, I think that we're still a long way from it being at the point where it's uh, mature enough, you know, potentially to consider as something that's really going to replace both your PC and your tablet. I think what's more likely to happen is you know uh, the kind of thing that happened with netbooks where it's it's you know you end up with a laptop and a tablet and a surface and you don't really use that surface that much 
And, you know, it's, I, I think it's, this probably holds true with the iPad mini conversation we had earlier and the smartphone conversation. Uh, but there is a, a massive ecosystem of third party accessories and doohickeys and add ons for these iOS devices that just cannot be matched right now by any of their competitors. And so, I mean, if you're interested in having, you know, a, a wealth of cases and speaker docks and things like that that are built just for your device, then you've got to look to the Apple side right now because that's that's where people are willing to spend money on those things. So that's where manufacturers are, are making those things. Well, I mean, that's a, that's pretty good coverage of a lot of Apple's major product lines. But I think there's one thing that you're probably going to hear at some point during your Thanksgiving dinner, Lex. And, and it's going to be the question that, you know, uh, one of your relatives declares in dealing with one of these, you know, above-mentioned problems that we've, we've addressed. Is it, uh, why did my daughter marry you? It is. It is <laughs> why she could have married a doctor. Right. Um, but no. Uh, no, it's, it's, well, you know, this wouldn't have happened if Steve Jobs were still alive. I think you're right. I think it's almost inevitable. And, to, uh, you know, I don't want to speak ill of my family. Or my family's table guests for Thanksgiving, but you're right. I mean, people are hearing this line in the press. They're hearing it from from various so-called pundits, whether it's on TV or in print. And so they're echoing that line. They think that because somebody said it, it, it may well be true. So they're giving that theory credence, whether it's the maps, hullabaloo, or if it's the pricing on the iPad mini, or even the, the slip dates for the release of iTunes 11, or uh, rumors have it that the, the new iMac is going to be delayed a little bit as well. And so, yeah, they're going to say that this is a problem because Steve Jobs is gone, and that Apple under Tim Cook, uh, if they can even remember his name, is suffering because because of Jobs' absence. Right. So what do you say to that? I mean, other than it sort of being kind of a, uh, a preposterous question, I mean, I think there's a reasonable counter argument to be made here. Um, and, and I think that a lot of this is, is an issue of perception, because we haven't necessarily yet seen what a what an Apple under Tim Cook looks like. We've started to see a little bit more. But again, so many people don't watch Apple with the to the extent that certainly we do, and I'm sure you listeners uh, do as well. And so we were aware of a lot of these little changes, you know, things like, oh, hey, Scott Forstall, the head of iOS software is out, and Johnny Ives in charge of design all across the, uh, you know, the Apple ecosystem for hardware and software. And this is gibberish to your family, right? right. Uh, you know, they want to know what's going to happen and without Steve Jobs there. And I think right. the important thing, you know, to stress for me when I when I discuss this is that is that, you know, Steve Jobs hired Tim Cook and he hired many of the executives that that are still working there. And this is the team that has been working on all these products, the iPhone and the iPad and the MacBook Air and you know, all these products that Apple's come out with over the last decade have been assembled by a team. Steve Jobs is, you know, an important guy and he was a really intelligent guy and a guy who who could make a lot of great decisions but he wasn't the only guy working at apple right and it's you know i think you're exactly right i think that people have probably overinflated exactly how much influence he had uh when he was alive on every decision that apple made i think that yeah i think the buck stopped with him and i think now the buck stops with someone else and maybe doesn't even stop on many decisions at tim cook's level he may well have said you know i'm not going to micromanage some of the decisions that uh, that jobs used to do because i don't have his eye for those details anyway or or the interest to to make those calls but i think you're you're right that i to me perhaps Steve's biggest legacy isn't any individual product, but rather the company itself, Apple. And Apple's uh, Apple clearly, I mean, not for its throughout its history, but certainly in the in the last uh, its last and current ongoing run of success, um, has a well defined corporate culture of you know how it 
does things and what its process is. And uh, while we'll, over time, as you were referencing, you know, we'll see more of Tim Cook's impact on that. Uh, it's the company has not turned around and said, okay, we're going to abandon everything that got us to this point, and we're going to just mess up everything now. And I, I think it's still very clearly in its uh, uh, in the same sort of path and guidance that Steve had had given the company. And uh, when I think people are are shocked or surprised or disappointed in in choices or, or moves that Apple's making now. Uh, they're thinking about it the wrong way. They're thinking about it with uh, Steve colored glasses because, you know, uh, under Steve Jobs' what, Apple. What color are those? Uh, they're, they're distortion field colors. Um, but under his Apple, you know, there were, there were times when he posted public apologies for things. There were, you know, there was mobile me. There was the iPad price drop. There was, uh, there have been plenty of, of, Apple missteps under Steve, and there'll be Apple missteps uh, without Steve. Apple was never a perfect company and still won't be a perfect company. It's just very, very good and very good at recognizing and fixing mistakes. Uh, Ping launched under Steve, and it, it shuttered under Tim. And I think Tim probably made the better decision there between the two CEOs. Um, so I think when people are saying this wouldn't have happened under Steve Jobs, first of all, I think we're still very much seeing a, a Steve Jobs Apple, even though he's gone. Uh, because I think that many decisions and many products were probably still touched by him in some way under a, a longer Apple product roadmap. And I think it'll be, you know, in the next coming year or two or three, when we really start to see products that, that had no Jobsian, no direct Jobsian influence. And I, you know, in terms of, you know, making mistakes or missteps or, or, or revisiting decisions, whatever, I think those same things happen under Steve and we're choosing to, to misremember or, or willfully forget that, you know, Apple is a company staffed by humans and is thus subject to humanity's flaws. And as as to the larger part of this, which is sort of the undercurrent of, well, now that Steve Jobs is gone, Apple is going to tip over from its own weight and disappear into the sea. I, I don't think that there's a lot of worry on that score, really. I think that people take, uh, you know, especially these pundits online, take a lot of uh, examples and blow them out of proportion to explain how this is going to mean the death of all things Apple. I, I don't think looking at where Apple is today, given its robust product line and the fact that its sales are still doing very well, despite what the Wall Street analysts might have you believe about missing expectations, um, I, I think that Apple's clearly in a really good place. And the fact that they continue to expand and continue to bring new products to market and continue to build out on things like Apple stores, which are, you know, reaching across the globe now, I don't think that there's anything to worry about in terms of Apple going away today or tomorrow or next year, or five years from now. Right. Uh, and so, you know, if if your your friends and relatives are concerned that that this company has no future, well, then maybe, you know, maybe that they're, they're, they're not the right people to be <laughs> maybe you selling should be on this. Maybe you should be your... having dinner somewhere else. That's right. It, it might be time to emancipate yourself from the family. I, I have to add, I think there is one other question our, our families might ask us at the table. Well, specifically us. Right. Which is how much Apple is paying us to shill for them in this way. Well... To which I think I can only respond, really? Do you see the way I dress? I mean, do you think I would dress this this poorly if I got paid enough by Apple? So not enough, in other words. Pretty much not enough, yeah. I would say the zero dollars and zero cents that they have paid me over the last uh, seven years or so is just really, uh, it's apparently not racking up the bank account there. If you And if you want to have the, you know, sort of the non-joke answer to that kind of a question, you know, if people, if you get that, that dreaded fanboy term or you're accused of Apple zealotry for zealotry's sake, uh, I think, you know, the, 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 and not everyone's going to accept this argument, but to me, the broader point really is 
yes, I am choosing to sometimes buy computers that are more expensive than other computers that are on the market. Uh, or yes, I've invested over time thousands and thousands of dollars in iPhones with their contracts because I've had different models of iPhone and I own all these different iPads in my case, let's say. But there's, you know, I think the question is, why did I make the decisions to get those products and to buy into Apple's way? And why did you make the decisions to get the products that you are more staunchly defending, let's say? And if you made your call to get that Inspatron 2000 because it was cheaper, then okay. So we're coming at it from different perspectives and that's acceptable and I have no problem with that. But if I'm coming to my choice and and am willing to spend more because I'm saying I want something that's going to be easier to use or more rewarding, emotionally satisfying to use, and you're saying, well, I saved a couple hundred bucks, then we're, we, we have two different philosophies and both are okay. But I, I think that zealotry is probably the wrong label. I'll get off my soapbox now. Well, I happen to agree with you. Um, unfortunately, I'm only sad that we can't give you an answer for when are you going to find a real job and settle down, uh, which is, I think, probably what I'm really going to hear over Thanksgiving. Anyway. <laughs> Hurrah for the fun. I think we've addressed most of your, most of your Apple-related questions. That's um, right. We can't help you with, um, with those kinds of questions from family, uh, and nor can we help if the turkey is overcooked and no one knows how to break it to mom. Yeah, well... Uh, we recommend you call the Butterball Hotline. Um, that's uh, that's pretty much it. I'd like to thank Lex Friedman for helping me out with this important task when the holiday season rolls around. And I'd like to say you're welcome to Dan Warren for helping him out with this important task. And we'd like to thank uh, all of you for listening. And for those of our listeners in the U.S., please have a happy Thanksgiving. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.